This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Indeed, this is Salt City Hoops. You're listening to Andy Larson alongside Ben Dowsett. I'm the managing editor of Salt City Hoops, Ben Dowsett, also writer, associate editor, I believe, and um, extraordinary, extraordinary, yes, just amazing gentleman and a scholar. Um, this is the Salt City Hoops show. So, w- in case you haven't heard us before, we are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. So, the rest of the show is going to be covered with Utah Jazz and NBA fun time action analysis. Um, some some insight, if you will, uh, and, and this week was a big week in in Jazzland because they actually got a win. They won a game. They won a game. We we have small victories here yeah. in in the Salt City Hoops land, and that's just because maybe the Jazz are so bad. But anyway, <laughs> I was I was waiting for. Now, I was gonna say I was disappointed at the start because John didn't play us some music. That so. song I thought was just was reserved for the Philadelphia 76ers, who who have now won two wins, by the way. Um, but anyway, the Jazz won a game. They avoided going on their first 10-game losing streak in 33 years. Um, that was an 18-game losing streak back in 81-82. So, uh, sorry, 30, yes, 33 years, which is a long time. Instead, this is just the longest losing streak, the nine-gamer, since 2005 uh, on that infamous 26-56 team that admittedly did get the Jazz a good draft pick. That's not even a decade. We're fine. Yeah, exactly. It's just the worst one in a decade. Whatever. But the Jazz got a win. They beat, and of course, they had to do it by beating the defending champs, San Antonio Spurs, just so you know that they do have that sort of talent in because, them. of course. 100 to 96. So we wanted to break down that win, uh, given that we've been win-starved over the last few weeks, and, and talk about what it was that led to that win. And also, because the Spurs are such an important organization to the Jazz, um, you know, with Quinn Snyder coming from the Spurs organization, Dennis Lindsay as well being their assistant general manager before becoming the GM of the Utah Jazz, uh, you know, there are a lot of ties between the Jazz and the Spurs, and, and the Jazz have outright stated that the Spurs are the model that, that the Jazz are trying to go after. So um, Greg Popovich had some interesting quotes about that uh, on Tuesday that we'll play as well. So anyway, uh, first, though, I want to get your thoughts on the game itself. What was it, Ben, that was different about Tuesday than the previous nine games before it? Well, of course, you have to... Tony Parker was out for the Spurs, which now that's not as large of an excuse as some people might think, because the Spurs are very used to playing without their stars. It happens all the time. Now, the drop-off, I would say, from Parker to the next guy, who is who's Corey Joseph, right. is pretty big. So that's, you know, that's a thing, and that's, and that's realistic. That said, there were several improvements for the Jazz. Um, one that I noticed in particular, actually, and it's, you know, it's just one game, so we have no idea if it's going to continue like this, was actually Ennis Cantor. I thought he played one of his best games uh, thus far as a Jazz man. I believe he was a plus 13 for the game while on the court or uh, something close to that, and his net per 100 possessions rating was very good, uh, close to 20. Very, very good. Um I, I actually uh, theorized afterwards that I think the types of guys he was guarding in this game, prim- primarily Matt Bonner and Boris Diaw, are actually decently good matchups for Cantor as a defender. We know that he's had numerous defensive issues throughout his career. I think that, you know, of course, both those guys can be a threat from distance, which for a, a slower presence like Cantor can be a problem, but I don't think either of them quite has the foot speed to really kill him, if you know what I mean, to run him through screens and to get him really badly confused. 
And as long as he's able to get his contests up on those longer shots, which I thought with one or two small exceptions he was able to do. He did much better. Yeah, he did, he did a lot better on those things. And, I mean, he's going to have the advantage in a lot of other areas in those matchups, and he took advantage of it. He was bringing those guys down into the post, getting low with them. He was getting a lot of rebounds. I thought he played really well, and he's not going to get those kind of cushy matchups every time out, but hopefully it can instill a little bit of confidence. It's a starting point for him. Yeah, th- this is something I want to ask Gordy, and let me actually introduce our show. The rest... Uh- so we've got two guests tonight. One, Dan Clayton, who's going to be uh, coming on the show. He's a Salt City Hoops writer, uh, explaining kind of what the Jazz can use as as the model uh, for this process of growth. Um, and then number two, we'll have Gordy Chiesa on, the Jazz insider Gordy Chiesa, um, and, and ask him, I want to ask him in particular about how this process of developing a good defense happens because you know he was with the uh memphis grizzlies as their defensive mentality was starting to take shape so i am curious to hear about that from gordy later on in the program so anyway i I totally agree with you i I think that's uh, the biggest difference to me was that the jazz were able to play better defense i mean Truthfully, the Jazz have had the second-worst defense in the league over this last 10-game stretch, and it's been awful at times. I mean, we make fun of the Lakers every show and and did quite rightly for their terrible defense. The Jazz's defense was worse over the last 10 games, and that's really discouraging for a team, for a new coach, for a system that wanted to pride itself on defense. Yeah, absolutely. And and to be fair, again, some of the credit does have to go to the Spurs seemed really rusty. You would think initially the Jazz on a back-to-back, the Spurs with either two or three nights of rest. I don't remember. It was one of the two. And you would figure they're going to have the legs and everything. It turned out they may have had a little bit of rust. Spurs only shot 35% on their uncontested shots for the night, which you're hard-pressed to find nights where the Spurs shoot that right. badly. they're on very good shooting shots. team. They're typically very good at that. And they and they generate, although, to be fair, the Jazz generated more of said shots and held the Spurs to just 28, which is way less than the Jazz usually only hold Only 28 opponent. uncontested shots? Uh-huh. 28 so, uncontested yeah, that, shots. To me, that's very good defense. For a team that runs you through every conceivable counter and and play action that you can for the Jazz to only give up 28 open shots is is a good is a win for me in, in yeah. my book compared to 56 guarded shots more and that again yeah. that's only by defender proximity in feet to the shooter and I do believe that some of that you talk about the Spurs style of moving the ball and the fact that missing Parker they do miss a lot of their I mean he's the be- easily the best on their team at reversing the ball side to side getting the defense moving getting them back on their heels so there's there's something to be said for that but at the same time this is still a really good team that very frequently sits at stars and beats the crap out of teams anyway so it's I, I right. think it was very encouraging they beat for the, the Knicks Jets. for example the next night yeah. without even Manu and, and Tim Duncan right Correct. They rested yeah. all of them. So mm-hmm. that the Jazz were able to get a win despite having to play, I guess, those guys means at least for right now we're better than the New York Knicks. I would hope so. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, they're in, in the mired of in a nine-game losing streak as, as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, so this kind of brings up this larger question of what's going on with the Jazz modeling the Spurs. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that Greg Popovich – modeled the Jazz, modeled the Spurs, excuse me, on the Jazz as a franchise. And, and there are a lot of similarities there. There's, there's both small markets, uh, and they both had these stars for a long time that kind of grew together. And I, I really think it's interesting that the Jazz were the first model franchise, and, and now the Jazz are looking to model their franchise on the Spurs. And, and to be fair, a lot of other NBA teams are. What I think was interesting is that Popovich really wanted their toughness, their night-to-night effort. And, and I asked Popovich what if the Jazz still had that, if they still had that characteristic toughness. And I think we've got that quote now. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, they, they're uh, the guys that have character, you know, the whole group. You know, they're, they're a hard-working group uh, as far as bringing it every night. They have the kind of character that, uh, you know, allows them to understand it's their job to come every night. And as they get used to the system, uh, things are just going to get better and better. Uh, it takes time to put in a new system, you know, a new group, new coach, you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, it's not easy. It's hard to win a game in the NBA. Well, first of all, Andy, Major congratulations from everybody for getting Greg Popovich to talk for that long concert. <laughs> That's a great success. Right it, there. it was especially frightening because right before that, Tony Jones had asked a question, you know, basically about how tough this Western Conference is. All of the top seven teams, by the way, are on pace to win more than 58 games. It's ridiculous. Which is, yeah, very ridiculous. So Tony Jones asked him, you know, does this feel like the hardest Western Conference to you that you've been a part of? Yes. And he, he said, said yes. sure it does. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm sorry, Tony. Or maybe it's an honor. I don't and know. Then, I, I think it's a little bit of an honor. And then maybe he doesn't look upon me in that same sort of way and actually <laughs> likes to answer my questions and give me quotes. But anyway, uh, what the, the, con- the content of what he had to say was interesting, too. So they're a hardworking group as far as bringing it every night. That's, that's interesting to see from a guy who's watched a lot of film of the jazz uh, that – he still feels that the Jazz are bringing it every night because, quite honestly, a lot of NBA teams don't. No, and I think that's a huge th- – we talked about the Knicks a second ago, and I think that's a prime example. There's t- there are a lot of teams like that that they have real issues being motivated to try their hardest all the time. And whether that's the style they play or whether that's the personalities of the players they've got or some combination of both – I absolutely agree with Popovich. You know, the Jazz have had a rough season, but we've, in and especially that eight-game losing streak. Um, nine. Nine, excuse me. Yeah. Excuse me, nine. During, at least, even during those times, though, when we, there were a, a series of really crappy first halves where they were, they were playing really badly, in basically every game, one or two exceptions, the Jazz fought and clawed their way back even after being down these 15 to 20-point amounts. And they're just there are teams in the league that you really don't see do that very often, that when they get down that kind of amount, they check out, that's the game, especially if it's in the second half, like that's just it. And I, I do think, especially for a young group, especially with a new coach who they could, you know, they could just be tuning him out. I don't think they are. I think they're 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 kind of, they're responding, and that's the quality and the talent are going to come as these guys get into their prime ages. And the fact that they have that sort of attitude, inst- or at least that a lot of them do, instilled in them already, is a good sign. And just from being around the team, I can also tell you that there are hard workers off the court as well, you know, at least on the practice court. Um, so, you know, they are putting in the hours and time and effort needed to be make themselves better, to make themselves the sort of players that can consistently win games. In are, the are there any who you'd highlight in particular there? Um, I, I mean, I, I know Ennis works extremely hard. Um, Gordon Hayward works extremely hard. Uh, you know, a lot of the... Fringe guys actually work really hard on their mm-hmm. games, and, and, and you know some of that might just be that they're trying to stay in the NBA. You know, that some of them don't have guaranteed contracts. Some of them are trying to make the, earn their minutes in the league. But to a man, I think they all work as hard as they should uh, in, in getting there, um, getting to where they need to be. How much? So, how much of that do we think is? Just these players' personalities themselves, and you know the draft did a, or the Jazz did a good job of analyzing those sorts of things in the draft. And versus how much of it is Quinn Snyder and his coaching staff instilling the right sort of attitudes, the right sort of techniques, things like that. I think it's nearly all 
their personalities kind mm-hmm. of correctly identified by Dennis Lindsay as, as they were drafted and acquired by the Jazz. I mean, that's one of the things that the Jazz look at most when they are drafting a guy or getting a guy in free agency or trading for someone is how hard are they willing to work because they do want this culture. They do want this system that that Jazz basketball has been known for to continue. Um, and, and so, you know, they were working, I would say, equally hard as they did last year with Ty Corbin as a coach. I, I don't think that's a difference. I think what, what Quinn Snyder is implementing is, is smarter coaching rather than harder coaching, um, if that makes sense. No, that, that, that makes sense. And I, I really think that you, you see the results. And I, I, I don't know. I was going to ask compared to last. You kind of just answered what my next question was because I was going to ask how do you think that kind of compares to what last, how last season was in terms of that. And... I have thought, and you know, this could totally just be m- me thinking of something incorrectly in my head because of the way this. this no, season, you're always right. No, I, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and be, but just because of the way that the season is perceived, we've we've perceived this season as kind of like a, a new beacon of light, you know. Right. Whereas the last season was kind of a, a I, doldrum season. I mean, I wrote a piece for ESPN.com calling it a new era of jazz basketball, yeah, exactly. and I, and I think that's what fans and everyone else is expecting. And, and truthfully, the on court performance hasn't been there right they're about the same offensively as last year about the same defensively mm-hmm. but still we feel this responsibility to this new era of basketball and, and which i think is fair given that it's the first time an outside coach has been hired in utah jazz history yeah absolutely but where where i was going with that was Sorry. essentially no 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 problem is is that i i feel like they've they've had more fight in the games where they've gotten themselves down than the team did last year. And I, again, I could just be totally making that up to myself because I feel differently about this team than I felt last year. I, I just feel like when things go bad, we're not seeing, you know, the Bill Simmons body language doctor is, is not seeing the same sort of negative body language. We're not seeing the sniping with the coach. Although, it's, I mean, it's not like we saw that every game or anything last year. But I don't know. It just feels more positive to me. Am I off there? Am I just saying that because of the, the, the fact that we have a new coach and that it is kind of a new beginning and we drafted a new potential superstar and so on and so forth? Like, am I, am I making that up for myself or is there some amount of realism there? No, and I think the third and fourth quarter runs that we've seen from this team, even as they are losing games, is, is a good example of that. I also just think that it's sort of a process that, that things – in fact, let me go ahead and have Greg Popovich say what I'm about to Tell say us, because Pop. that seems much smarter. Uh, he explained you know, what it is, this process that takes time to, to happen. There's no formula. Uh, you know, it's, it, it depends on people. You know, people. Different people get it at different times. Uh, but what's important is to keep on pushing and be persistent. I know that's what Quinn is. He's going to be persistent. He knows what wins and loses. Uh, but, you know, things take time uh, to take root. And everybody uh, gets on the, figures it out at a different time, really, uh, is what happens. And along the way, you know, success is uh, – confidence is an important part of that. So, you know, a win against the Spurs tonight or a win against the Clippers whenever or Oak City or, you know, whoever it might be, another good basketball team, uh, it, it – helps the process move along uh, and and that'll happen you know that's because they're good people they're good young players and Quinn knows what he's doing Dennis you know is a is a great leader uh, and really understands the big picture so it's going to be nothing but hopeful uh, and successful as time goes on you just have to be patient 
I think we need to archive these last two quotes, and we need to do both. You and I both need to have like a hotkey so that we can hit them on our Twitter accounts, like whenever, <laughs> just any time, because there's there's a lot of potential negativity that sometimes goes around, and of course that's born of fans being passionate, which there's nothing wrong with, but. I think that replaying that every once in a while for people in moments of tension would be a, a, a positive because it's, he's totally right. Yeah, They're, things take time to take root and you have to have patience are, are two things that are really hard to do. And, you know, when you're watching a game and you're screaming at the referees and, and someone doesn't contest a shot and, you know, everything is going poorly, uh, there's <laughs> it's hard to have that sort of long-term patience, this idea that the Jazz are going to be good two to three years from now. But... You have to. I mean, uh, the, Popovich says it. You you have to have that patience. And, and uh, what he said, uh, that a win against the Spurs tonight, I, I love that he predicted his own downfall, <laughs> um, helps move that process along. That That's a big win for the Jazz, you know, because we're not thinking short-term. We're thinking long-term about how these players are growing together as a, as a group. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're going to have Dan Clayton on after our next break, and he's gonna we're going to talk with him a bit about an article that he posted today sort of discussing the difference between process and actual results, right? And we know that for a team like this, the way you have to be thinking is by far the former. Like, sure, the result matters to a point. And, and things like the Jazz's rank and their offensive or defensive rating and their actual record on the scoreboard, of course, matters as well. But what's most important for a team like this that you're not not expecting to make the playoffs or challenge for a title is making sure that players know how to do their process the right way. And I think to a large degree, that's what Popovich is kind of saying, don't you think? I totally agree. But by the way, if you're one of those fans out there who has something to say, who, who maybe is or is not patient, and I want to know what you guys think about whether or not this patience is is a good idea or you know whether or not jazz fans have been patient long enough you can call into us our phone number 877-353-0700 or you can tweet us at andy b larson or at ben underscore dowsa just want to get the fan voice a little bit in here if we can um just because i am curious how fans feel about that this patience and process and system is required because you know we've been hearing this for a long time now and the Jazz haven't made the playoffs in two and a half seasons. Yeah, but I, you know, I think you look, and generally the the process is longer than that. You look at the teams that have truly built it ground up, like the Jazz are trying to. Which is, I mean, they really are. Like, there's no shortcuts being taken here. There's no, there has been no trading away of young pieces for veterans in the last couple of years here because they're they're following the process step by step. I mean, look at a team like OKC, for example. That's how how many years did it take them? From when and who knows whether they were doing it intentionally because back then we didn't talk about things like that. We didn't talk about as much, at least, about teams intentionally tanking and things right. like that. But they, I, if I'm not mistaken, they went three or four years being one of the worst teams in the Western Conference, including a couple where they had Kevin Durant. Like this was right. after they got him, and that all that happened well before. And then all of a sudden there was the one year where I think they finished eighth, and everybody was talking about like, well, you better watch out for these guys in the playoffs. And then the next year it was like, okay, these guys are here. And I, I think that's the kind of trajectory the Jazz are trying to look for, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that, you know, I know fans of all of all uh, attitudes on this. I know some, and I trust me, I totally understand it for all of you because I'm, I get the same way. We're in there during games, and it's like, why are they still doing the same thing that they've been doing, and what, you know, blah blah. We're going to talk to Dan, like I said, more about this afterwards, and. I think that sometimes we have a tendency to get ahead of ourselves and forget about the the process. We've said process like 55 times during this <laughs> segment, but it's true. We have a tendency to forget that 
there's we're I mean I I don't even know that we're, are we halfway through the if you what how you quantify a rebuild process I'm not exactly sure but I I don't even know that we're fifty percent of the way through it yet if you think of the end of it being the team contends for a playoff spot and or a Western Conference title yeah I I agree and and that's that's I I want the Jazz to win. More now. I mean, I'll be honest, because you have to go into a a locker room and see these guys literally devastated. I mean, you attended Friday's game with me, Mm -hmm. and you you walk into that locker room, and you see Derek Favors just dejected. He was really upset, you could tell. Just sitting in his chair, not doing anything. Just, you know, honestly, it looked like he had cried about how the outcome of the game had turned out. Just was like... uh, non-responsive and you see how much these guys care about winning and how much it means to them when they don't you can't help but want good things for them absolutely and and i i uh number one jazz fan angie uh i believe agrees with us at least at least to a point she said i have no problem finding wins in rough seasons i feel good about the blueprint and good about personnel and i you know what i agree there's you can haggle with little individual things and i do tons of it myself you know i can haggle with i'd like to see more variety in the offense or i'd like to see this this and this from defense but the blueprint is what we planned for it to be the way things are going are t- within a degree the way we plan them to be. And I don't think there's any problem with it. And I, you know, there are, of course, you know, yes, of course it sucks to see the players dejected like that when they lose games, but there's silver linings for those things at the end of the year in the draft every year. So (laughs) that, and it's harder for the players to think about that specifically, but as a fan, I think about that also. Yeah, I I think that's fair. It's unfair for the players to think about that draft pick, but, uh, you know, as a fan, as someone who's looking at that whole picture as a general manager, that's absolutely what you do have to look at Mm -hmm. in order to have a successful team. All right, well, let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we will have, as you mentioned, Dan Clayton, Salt City Hoops writer, uh, joining us, talking more about this process, the, uh, you know, how the Jazz can become actually a good team again, um, despite this kind of disappointment over the last few weeks. And then, of course, later on in the show, we'll have Gordy Chiesa join us and tell, him, uh, tell us his insights on how the Jazz have looked this season, both from a coaching perspective and on the floor. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. So during the break, we had a brief moment of panic as we saw Kyrie Irving had gone down and left the floor with an apparent, well, really bad knee injury that it looked like on video. Um, You know, the kind of thing that makes you worry if a guy's torn his ACL or not. But luckily, he just told Rachel Nichols that he just has a left knee contusion and will return to tonight's game as the Cavaliers take on the Thunder. Luckily, one of another one of the NBA's superstars does not have to leave for for a lot of action. How it would be sad for another Eastern point guard to have a devastating knee and injury like just that. Just increase the West's dominance over the East just a tad bit more. Now I'm glad I'm glad Kyrie's okay. Kyrie's been one of my favorites. He's one of those guys who I kind of glommed onto in when he was at Duke. I have a strange in liking his nine for, games at Duke. No, I know it's it's weird, right? I I he. I have a weird liking for Duke, which stems back to a, a video of their 93 or 92, whatever year that was, championship that my parents used to have when I was a little kid that I've probably watched okay. like 40 times for some reason. And I've always liked Mike Krzyzewski and whatnot. So, yeah, he's – and I've, I always – I was telling people that year, like, you know, don't sleep on him despite him being hurt. This guy's going to be awesome type of thing. So I'm glad he's not hurt. You, that was really brave of you to, you know, hype up the number one draft pick. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
Anyway, let's go ahead and get Dan on the show. Dan Clayton is a writer for Salt City Hoops, wrote an excellent article on saltcityhoops.com today. Uh, check it out if you haven't already. Dan, are you there? Hey, you guys. How you doing? I'm here, and uh, neither of my knees are contused, so... Um... You know, I think we're good to go. I was I was hyping up Dan too when he was first coming out to get drafted. So that's that's <laughs> that's really excellent news. Yeah, that's true. And I and I wasn't a number one overall pick. I was like a consensus eighth rounder or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So I mean, I'm smart, guys. So uh, Dan, I want to ask you about the little p- parts about this piece. I think one of the interesting things uh, you wrote about is just how many different contradictions are up with this jazz squad like you know we see something in the stats but then it's like they're doing the things that should be leading them to success but then the output isn't there you know what i mean like uh, talk more about that oh i know exactly what you mean because i mean that was that was really uh the idea behind the article was the fact that you know we've known for a while that the jazz are leading the nba in passes per game they're they're actually doing well in terms of above average, certainly in terms of, you know, fast break usage and things like that. And yet they come out really poorly, both in terms of overall offense and, and shots created by the pass and, uh, and, and certainly pace. So it was kind of this disconnect between, you know, the, the, the process and the results as Ben puts it. And as other people have put it, most notably Quinn Snyder, um, you know, the behaviors don't necessarily always line up with the outcomes and, and I don't know, I mean, you know, Andy, I, I'm curious to hear, you obviously spend a lot of time around Coach Snyder, I'm curious to hear um, about the conversations you've had on this front, because it seems to me like Quinn is not all that worried about the results at this point, he's more worried about just making sure that guys understand, um, you know, at a pretty simple level, how to execute the core of the offense, and, and really another another thing that I talked about in the article was, when I say core of the offense, I mean like pretty simple A or B reads and not even thinking about, you know, C, D, E, F and the other options that can come from a play. You you very often see a jazz player catch the ball, look one spot, look a second spot, and like that's that's it. Like they most touches right now for the jazz have two options, and I think that's because Quinn really wants to deeply ingrain those those first couple of responses in uh, in his guys before he starts getting super fancy. Yeah, no, I agree. So to your first point about, you know, how long-term he is, I, th- I think, honestly, that might be the biggest difference between Quinn Snyder and Ty Corbin is just how long-term Quinn Snyder thinks. I mean, he, I, he may have been the least worried man out there with the nine-game losing streak just because he saw these small little things that actually did improve over the course of that uh, and he kept commenting on it, just you know that you know instead of five things going wrong during a defensive possession, only one or two were going wrong, which you know in the end you still give up a missed basket or or a made basket. You're you're still in the end one of the worst defensive teams, but at least like the underlying things are getting a little bit better. Uh, so uh, as far as that part of Quinn Snyder's personality goes, that's that's definitely there. Um, and, and I think you're right, Dan, that as this defense or sorry as this offense gets scouted um these little actions that you know a guy looks left and if it's open then he passes if not he looks right and passes you know like or, or he makes very the pass simple... anyway and jimmy butler right and we've seen that happen at times just because if defenses are able to take away the two first options of the jazz then then you know they're kind of out of luck offensively um and we've seen that a little bit that 
teams have been able to scout the Jazz and have taken away a lot of the offensive effectiveness that they had, I think, in the first 10 games of the season. Yeah, yeah. well, right. I mean, I, I don't think, I guess that's the point, is that the Jazz offense right now is pretty uncreative, and I think that's different from what most of us expected after hearing about uh, you know, Quinn Snyder, the mad scientist in his basketball lab, dreaming up crazy wrinkles for plays. Instead, what we're seeing is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. And at this point, I think, you know, the three of us could grab two other guys and step on the floor and, and force the Jazz into some turnovers because we know that, like, you know, hey, when the ball hits this spot, it's either going to go there or there next, right? And um, and I guess And I guess my overarching point is that, I think that's by design. I think that's okay. I think that's what Quinn Snyder wants. I think he wants to create a foundation of of the basics of, of the basketball behaviors that later on can can lead them into some Mavs style or Spurs style improvisations and and you know really impressive next level stuff. Well, uh, at least that's what we all hope, right? Oh well, definitely. So here's here's my question: when when does that change? When do we? When if you're Quinn and I, you know, of course you're not in the locker room with the guys. When when do you think about offense? And just I'm just talking offensively here. When do you think about introducing certain new little things, some different wrinkles, some a different way of starting most sets? That's something I referenced as a footnote in one of my pieces recently. Was that the yeah. the which you you pretty much said again today? Only better is that the the way they initiate their plays with the first pass to the big in the middle of the floor and then looking to either reverse or give it back to the original passer. That's it's really bland. Teams know what they're doing with it by now it's kind of not working i've kind of i've, I've looked for maybe a, a couple of new things there when is it time for that yeah that's a really good question i i think i think what he's balancing and and i don't know i you know i don't get to talk to quinn snyder and and maybe this is something that andy you've talked to him about or, or could talk to him about but i mean i see things like um, you know, when, when someone does overplay that left side pass, which uh, there's a still in the article from today that you see the amount of real estate behind, you know, in front of Alec Burks if he cuts back hard the other way. I can't, I can't imagine, like, Quinn's got to be pretty impatient. There's got to be a really big temptation to say, like, dude, when that space is there, just attack it and trust Trevor Booker to nail you with the, the bounce pass and you're going to have all that space in front of you, and Timmy's going to have to come up and guard you, and that might open up favors on the baseline, or it might you know, pull someone over from the weak side, and then you've got a shooter. Like, you've got to think that an NBA coach would be like bursting at the seams to, to go to that next step, and, and Quinn has always talked about not wanting to skip ahead in the developmental process. So I don't know when the right moment is. I, I guess the answer is when when guys are, are doing the A versus B reads flawlessly and, and as second nature and they're not committing those dumb turnovers out front and they're, doing, and they're doing that read so well that you no longer have to worry about if they have A and B down, then you teach C and then you teach D. I, I, don't, I mean, I've, having never coached an NBA team, that's, that's uh, my guess on what he's waiting for, but obviously some of this stuff that we can see that might be you know, the very next wrinkle in where the Jazz take this is pretty low-hanging fruit. So I, I think it's there for the taking, uh, you know, as soon as Quinn says to his guys in practice, so A, as soon as he gets practice time, but then as soon as he says to them in practice, hey, guys, when this happens, let's try this next. Definitely. Well, and if I was devil's advocating, my issue with the first bit that you were saying there would be 
it gets harder and harder for them to perfect the A and B process when teams know exactly what A and B are and know ex- that they're about to do that pretty much every time. It gets a lot harder to do that perfectly. So I, I've, I, I kind of agree with you that those are, you know, low-hanging fruit is a, a good way to put it. And I think that part of the process, as we, we, we keep discussing process, part of that has to be allowing the players to then have those more complex actions involved where they have to learn them on the fly and they have to kind of they have to make some mistakes that's going to be a part of it is they're going to have to make the errors and i i'm not sure that the time isn't soon ish for it you know yeah, i, I no, don't think they're going to go the whole year at least no i agree i don't think we're going to i don't think we're going to have to wait to get back into another training camp to start introducing you know the the rest of the Quinn Snyder offense but it's pretty clear at this point that what the Jazz are running is um, is really rudimentary and, like I said, really uncreative. And because of that, what you know, what that results in is a lot of just empty actions. A lot of times when they pass the ball and just to pass the ball and that, you know, tallies up the pass count for the game and for the season, but it doesn't really present an advantage. Or they, you know, go around a screen, but they don't really take advantage of what the screen gave them. So that's why... That's why I think what we're seeing is a disparity between, um, you know, actions and outcomes. Because at the end of the day, how many plays have we seen? And there's 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 video of one such play in the article, where you know several guys get around their defender and start heading into the lane, and then they pass back out to the perimeter, and we kind of reset things. <laughs> and uh, and I think that's why the Jazz are struggling with pace. It's not because they're not running. The, the fast break numbers say that they're running when the opportunity is there. When the fast break gets cut off, it goes into this, you know, 24-second-long cycle of pass-fake, pass-fake, dribble-dribble fake, pass-fake, and then the Jazz wind up with something late in the shot clock that doesn't look that great. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree that that's one of the problems. We've only got about a minute left in the segment, Dan, but I wanted to ask you really quickly, your most pleasant surprise about the Utah Jazz this year and then your most uh, unpleasant surprise. Uh, well, pleasant surprise, I, I would say, um, I, would, I would have to say Gordon Hayward. And I say that recognizing that, you know, empirically speaking, Favors is playing just as well and, and maybe even better if you look at some metrics. But um, but in terms of, you know, the combination of metrics and eye test, I think what Gordon is doing is really taking a next level um, and, and leading a team and, and doing it rather well compared to last year when I think he was struggling. And I'm running out of my 60 seconds here, so most <laughs> disappointing – Probably, honestly, Trey Burke. Uh, I, I expected growing pain still from Ennis. I expected uh, to see a little bit of the inconsistency we're still seeing with Alec Burks. I think what we're seeing from Trey is kind of a surprise to me. Uh, he, he's not running the team particularly well, and he's certainly not defending well. Yeah, How did I, I do? Pretty well. No, the, perfect on timing. Well, everyone, thank you, uh, or thank you to Dan for joining us on the show. Um, Dan, where can we follow you? Dan Clayton with a zero instead of an N. D A N C L A Y T zero N. Perfect. And then all of your writing is on saltcityhoops.com. Thanks again, Dan, for joining us. Um, so on the other side of this break, we're going to be talking about the. Uh, I, I like that he said talked about Gordon Hayward because we're going to talk about Derek Favors and how well he's played this season on the other side of the break and whether or not he can make the All Star roster in the Western Conference. It's it's a loaded one. So. Um, that's on the other side of the break. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Talking hoops and the association. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson alongside Ben Dowsett. 
Uh, by the way, you can follow me at Andy B. Larson. Follow Ben here at Ben underscore Dowsett. So, you know, you can hop on the Twitterverse and, and respond to us if you'd like through through tweets. I promise I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the Internet. Those are, those are terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can also call us uh, if you'd like to weigh in on anything about the Utah Jazz this week or, heck, at all. Um, 877-355-0700. Sorry. 877-353-0700. Ah, there you go. Excuse me. So, I thought you meant call us like any time, and I was kind of worried because sometimes the fans get frustrated and I don't want them to call me. No, they should call us. I- I'll give out my cell phone number if you will, Ben. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so I I want to talk about this segment, Derek Favors, because I-, I don't think that he's gotten enough pub for how much of a jump that he's made this season. Um, you know, We talked about Gordon Hayward, but Derek Favors has – been just a much better player than he was last year. I mean, so he's put up a 22.8 PR. That's good for 12th in the league. Um, he's putting up 18 points a game. Uh, sorry, 16 points a game, putting up uh, eight rebounds a game. Basically, he's be- turned into this all-around excellent power forward slash center. Power forward. We, we disagree on. And, and honestly, should be named as one of those guys who has like a chance of making the all-star team should – a couple guys get injured. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, that's kind of the best case, unfortunately. But he's because 12th in the he's 12th in PER in the whole is. league. Like, now, shouldn't that guy, if he's 12th in the league, shouldn't he make an mm, all-star roster? PER is, as we know, which, again, for those who don't know, is player efficiency rating. It's sort of a one-number stat that in, in many ways summarizes a player's full statistical contributions while on the court. It doesn't capture everything, as we know. There can't. There are... Uh, it tends to really favor rebounding really highly and things like that. There's a there's a couple of things like that. I don't know that being really highly ranked in PER by itself means that you should be on an all-star team. I absolutely agree, though, that he needs to be one of those guys who are saying, you know, every year there's a few of these guys because people seem to forget year after year that there's only 12 spots on each conference's all-star team, and 12 isn't very many. And that there's certain guys that, you know, like we talked about when we talked about Hayward a few weeks back, there's, you know, your Kobe's and your people like that who don't even deserve to be there but are probably going to get voted in anyway because they have a ton of fans right so every year there's a few guys that you know have played to that level what we think of as all-star caliber that aren't going to make the all-star team and this year I would hope that Derek Favors is one of those I would hope that as we start to see those you know those snub lists the guy you know these these three guys got snub type of thing then maybe he's on the back end of some of those lists because he absolutely deserves some praise for what he's been doing particularly offensively he's played really really well offensively my biggest thing is his turnovers He's dropped his turnovers down to his lowest percentage of his career, which considering that he has upped his usage, which is how frequently he touches the ball and ends possessions with things like a a shot or assist or turnover, things like that, has gone up. And you don't typically... You see it, but usually when players are younger, and you don't usually see it when they're taking the kind of jump that he is, and especially when when they're handling the ball more in tough situations like pick and rolls a lot more often, which is what he's doing. And... To me, that's really impressive, and I, I did a, uh, an article earlier this week that was about some of these some positive jazz trends. This was before the losing streak had ended, so there were there's still a lot of negativity, you know. Right. And I, I want and then Derek, Derek was the first player that I that I said there. His numbers have changed just a bit, but his his thresholds in terms of his per, his usage. And his lack of turnovers, there were only 19 players still in their first five years in the league that had ever put up a stat line like that wow. before. And are, I mean, did those players, you tell me, did they become some of the, the 
premier big men in the league? Absolutely. There were only only two of those seasons, seasons put up by Marcus Johnson and Kiki Vandeweghe. And, I mean, a lot of people know who Kiki Vandeweghe is, not as many Marcus Johnson. Those are the only two individual player seasons that were had by guys that, that the 90% of our fans wouldn't recognize immediately if I hmm. said their name. The rest of the guys were, you know, your Shaq twice, I think. No, Shaq did it once. Dirk did it twice. Anthony Davis is currently doing it this year and did it last year as well, which, I mean, he's he's a superhuman alien thing. Anthony Davis still, by the way, has the best PER of all time. Yeah, which is, oh my goodness, it's completely insane. But yeah, I, I those those combinations, and it's a bit of a cherry pick in one sense, but those a player that can put all those things together while also not turning the ball over very often is extremely valuable offensively. Yeah, no, I'm excited. So uh, it's just it's just a bummer that he's in the Western because I think he'd be an All Star in the East. I think he'd be really really close. Yeah, uh, eight of those players of those eleven players ahead of him in those PR rankings are in the Western Conference. Just to give you an idea of the mm-hmm. West East discrepancy there. Eight to three, and then a lot of them are at that forward position too. So you've got your Anthony Davises, Demarcus Cousins is, is a one and two. Durant, uh, uh, yeah, he's not well, on that list, but he'll make the All Star team. Exactly. Uh, you got Blake Griffin, Marcus All. You know, the guys that just definitely deserve to make it. And, and below there, you've got Tim Duncan, Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, you know, again, guys that Derek Favors probably doesn't deserve to be there in New York over yeah and it whether or not he deserves it he won't just because of name value at this point right. he's but down the I don't think that all-star appearances for him are anything out of the question in the future I don't either no I, I think that's really exciting for what's what's possible with Derek Favors yeah uh, how good is he defensively that's the that's the million dollar question right now I think because I, I think we're seeing right now you know his jump shot may regress a little bit or it might keep being really good like it has been really good relative to what he has been in the past I, I think the defense is the biggest question and I've I've surmised a million times over that he's playing the wrong position and that if he was consistently guarding power forwards we might be seeing some different things from him for example the game uh, last Friday night that I attended at when they played Orlando at home, right. Orlando was missing Nick Vucevic, meaning that they were a lot smaller. They went with Channing Fry at the five a decent amount. But Favors in general was guarding guys who are slightly less bulky than they normally are. What happened? He got five blocks and played a great defensive game, probably one of his best defensive games we've seen from him. I really think that people tend to really minimize the difference between a 6'10 power forward and a 7'1 center. And there is a really, really big difference. I know Derek has a long reach. He's got a 7'4 wingspan, and that's good. But the fact is, he's giving up strength to a lot of these centers that he's playing against. And I just don't think that that's the right situation for him. His strengths defensively are his lateral speed and the quickness with which he can get off the ground, right? Sure. I think we need to. Ma- I think that the team needs to maximize those things. And I think when he's playing against guys, power forward to you know, sure a couple of them stretch fours, he's going to give up a speed advantage too, and in right. some cases a major one. But I mean, they played against a bunch of stretch four, and it was Cantor guarding stretch fours against uh, against San Antonio a couple nights right, ago, and they got away with it. I I know that they got away with it, but that's not ideal. I, I think you want Derek Favors as close to the paint as possible on defense, and so when he's out there, you know, guarding the Ryan Andersons of the world, the guys who are playing that stretch four position, you're kind of wasting. It's a waste of a tall person. It can be, and there are times with matchups like that where it's going to be an issue and you're going to have to mix and match. Like Quinn's going to have to do some creative stuff, maybe think about only one big lineups and stuff like that rather than always having two non-shooting bigs out on the court type of thing. But I I really do think it's worth looking at because I think the trade-off is worth it. The trade-off for how, unfortunately, I, I don't think he's been a very good rim protector against 
actual big guys. I think he gets bullied in the post a lot because he's allow he's he's giving up a weight advantage to some of them and he's allowing them to get too good a position. I really think we would see more from him if he and you know there's there's only a limited number of power forwards that are actual true power forwards that aren't stretching the floor. And as you say, it's a concern. I'd like to see at least it get tried every now and then though to see what we can do with it. I, I think it's a real worry that he's being beaten at that center position strength-wise. But I think, honestly, a lot of it to do has to do with his reticence to draw fouls. And I, I think, or sorry, to pick up fouls yeah. against the offensive team. And that was a big issue early in his career. And I think he's learned, you know, if I stay ground-bound and just keep my hand up and, you know, don't get in these kind of bully battles, then you're he's more likely to stay on the floor so he can do so well offensively. Mm. I, I just want him to see it, him put it all together because I, I think he's regressed defensively from where he was in yeah. years one, two, and three, uh, along with this offensive progression. I, I think that it's possible that he can put it all together if he can learn how to play tough and the right way. I, I hope you're right. And, uh, you know, I'd love to be wrong here. I'd love to see Favors have a long, productive career as a center. I'm just, I'm, I'm not sure that, and, it, you know, it really does get tough with, like we're saying, because sometimes you're giving that up against the big guys, and then sometimes you're giving up, an, if you play them at the four, sometimes you're giving up an advantage against your, you know, your Harrison Barneses of the world who are playing, I mean, he's playing four, and that guy will run circles around a guy like Derek because he's just faster. So it's a bit of a trade-off. Still, though, his offensive ascension has way outdone his defensive lapses. Yeah, I don't think there's any question. All right, so on the other side of the break, we'll have Gordy Chiesa join us and maybe give us a tie break on this question. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of Salt City Hoops. We got Ben Dowsett on the other side, other side of the table. <clears throat> Andy had a, Andy's Sorry. having a coughing attack. Having a coughing attack. Give I, him a I second. very well may choke and die here on the show. That would that be a radio first? I don't think I so, not. but it'd be kind of crazy. It would probably boost our ratings too. Oh boy, <laughs> not worth it. Anyway, uh, yeah, um, we've got Gordy Chiesa on the other end of the line, and I've got a lot of questions from the show and uh, just things I've wanted to ask Gordy for a while. So, Gordy, are you there? Yes, I am. Hey, guys, how you doing? Good, good. So uh, I want to ask you uh, kind of big picture with the Jazz. You know, you're a professional coaching consultant for the Orlando Magic and other NBA franchises. I, I want to ask, from your point of view, what do you think about Quinn Snyder's coaching style and techniques and, and that sort of thing thus far? Well, I think it's really sound and it's very good. I mean, a huge factor in coaching is the ability to get your players to play harder, and he has. And sometimes it's unfortunate. The perception is that he has to uh, sometimes um, get on them. Now, you would like not to do that, but the fact of the matter is that you've got to get on them to perform until they get into the habits. It's all about changing the culture. In jazz basketball, what Quinn Stein is trying to do is change the, um, just the immediate culture to make it more intense, especially defensively. Now, there's been mixed results. But he's pointing in the right direction. And that game we saw against the Spurs, that was an interesting game because that was the Jazz being more physical than than the defending champions. Absolutely, Gordy. And, you know, before you joined us today, we were talking about the differences kind of between process and results. And I think we've said process probably a hundred times so far in the last hour and three minutes. And I I think you kind of just brought up some of the same things is that he's instilling the right bits of process. Now, 
if you were the Jazz coach, and of course you've been involved with the Jazz before, and you've been a coach for you, you know your whole life basically, are there any specific things get, getting a little bit more down to it that you might do differently, and or are there a few specific things that you've really enjoyed from Quinn Snyder so far? Well, the things I really enjoyed is that is intensity, and that's Jazz basketball, and that intensity is not crazy intensity. That's intensity of getting guys to do the right thing. See, most players don't realize they think they're playing hard, but they can go even harder. And that hard, playing hard is also an element of being alert and having an execution culture. And so I like about the Jazz is how they move the ball. Now, they really do move the ball. Unfortunately, sometimes they can't shoot straight. So as those guys get more habits of, of catching the ball um, in rhythm, they're going to shoot better. And so as the Jazz go forward, they've got to get better consistent shooting out of uh, Trey Burke and out of uh, Alec Burke. Rodney Hood, who really is a good shooter, but an injury set him back some. He's got to be able to knock down that, that primitive um, middle game jump shot. And they've got it with uh, Joe Engels. He also has to be able to shoot the ball. So those guys are shooting a uh, uh, 30-something percent, most of them, and 20-something percent from the floor. And I didn't add purposely Dante Exum. So they are moving the ball, but they're not getting uh, the results of making being a shot maker. And that's all part of what? The process and of catching in rhythm and having uh, confidence. And as we know, shooting is one of those elements that is most easily learnable, if you will. Now, that's not to say that every player that's a bad shooter can necessarily become a great shooter, but it's one of those areas that, again, if you go through the process of practicing and practicing and drilling and hundreds of jump shots every day, we've seen plenty of Jason Kidd-like examples where they came into their careers as guys that couldn't hit a brick wall from three feet away to guys that became you know legitimate 40% three-point shooting specialists later on in their careers. Now... Gordy, you also spent time in Memphis early on in your career, and you, and you were there sort of in the, 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 the years where this groundswell of really excellent defense that we now know as just a constant for the Memphis Grizzlies was starting to become the reality. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the, again, the process of that, that the Jazz might be able to imitate as they're kind of trying to build a great defense from the ground up? Yes, it's called hounding and pounding, and that's the layman's term. In other words, where the perimeter guys, they really hound their opponents. Most times in, in the Grizzlies basketball, their guards pick up on their own at three-quarter or half-court, and they really try to get into the dribbler early to use more shot clock uh, defensively to put the uh, disadvantage to the offense. And the guys inside, generally speaking, they put a body on their um, opponent. Now, with that said, there's an element of fouling. That's what you've got to be able to master, the art form of technique. Like any sport, whenever sports involve the ball, you've got to master technique. So in Grizzlies basketball, I just described Marco Sol. I just described um, um, Tony Allen defensively. I just described, uh, just described Zach Randolph, Michael Conley, Courtney Lee. These are all guys that play hard. They have technique and they have intensity, and it's magnified now as a collective group where they, they've mastered the art form of playing help-to-helper defense. And that's why the Grizzlies are in contention right now. Even though their talent level is, is um, not the highest uh, standard, but they have good players, not elite players, minus um, 
Marco So. But their defense holds them in there every single game, and that's why, as we speak right now, they have the second-best record in, in the West right now. Let me ask, do you see similarities between the Memphis Grizzlies and, and kind of what you imagine the Utah Jazz to become? Yeah, I do. But it, but become now, but that was Jazz basketball since 1980-something. I mean, so if the fans are um, just refer back to pick a year, 1995, pick a year, 2001, pick a year, uh, 1986, and I'm not living in the past. I'm living in the future, but that was Jazz basketball. Let's not forget, the Jazz went to the playoffs for 20 straight years, 20 years in a row. Amazing. And part of that was is, is defense. So it's not really new in Salt Lake City. Unfortunately, the last few years, the team had amnesia of playing defense. And now the perception somewhat thinks because of, of the head coach of the, of the um, Utah Jazz is sometimes intense. Boy, that's really different. No, it's not. That's, that's basketball. But you can't be crazed. And that's that fine line. Uh, great coaching at this level any, uh, in the NFL, in the uh, NBA, in Major League Baseball, is where you've got to be intense with the guys, but you can't be crazed. And that's that unbelievable uh, situation defensively. And it all starts when the head coach uh, calls out the players in film sessions about accountability that this is your assignment on this play, you did not do it, why not? Absolutely, Coach. Now, do you, and we're, we're sticking with the Memphis teams, because really they're a great example for, a, for a, a small market team to build itself from the ground up and have the, the type of hard-nosed defensive system that, as you're saying, the Jazz were essentially prided themselves on for a very long time in the organization. Do you see anyone currently on the Jazz roster that could approximate a Marc Gasol-style defensive captain, if you will, a defensive general, the, the, the person kind of commanding the troops and, and leading the charge as on that defensive unit? Well, the best defensive player, and he's really good, is Trevor Booker. That guy has technique, and he's got toughness, and he's alert. Now, the concern, though, he's only 6'8", so he can do it as a 4-3 um, a in a game of trying to get through screening action and trying to really um, to be a charge taker. But it's got to be from, generally speaking, your defense is built uh, from ball side on. So your point guard has got to be maniacal, whether it's your starting point guard or your backup point guard. And in team building, what you want to do is that if your starting point guard is, um, is a pass-happy point guard and he's a um, finesse player, then your backup point guard has got to be gritty where he can guard some of the starting point guards when you're resting the starting point guard, and he can outplay and outwork and outwill the majority of the backup point guards. So a huge factor of teams being successful is understanding that everyone on that team, uh, either ahead of you or uh, below you in a depth chart, should be slightly different than you defensively. So one of the things we were talking about on Friday's game, and you know, this was you, me, and Salt City Hoops uh, founder Spencer Hall, we, we were talking about how the crowd looks different than uh, the old school jazz basketball back when you were coach Jordy or Gordy. Jordy. Uh, uh, I want to <laughs> ask, you know, from your perspective, how different is this jazz crowd from from kind of the days of yesteryear? Oh, dramatically different, but that's okay. Anybody that loves jazz basketball and and uh, 
Andy, you, I, and Ben, and many, many people listening right now on uh, driving on I-15 or listening to the program, they're going to say the same thing, that we're okay with uh, not being successful we, as we like to be as we speak. But we want to see, um, as the team goes forward, uh, defensively, how they get better. And that energizes the fans. I always say this all the time. Don't the fans energize you. You energize the fans by your effort, by your ball movement, by your uh, hustle place. It's not the, uh, it's not the fans going to energize you. It has to be you within and your teammates. And an answer to this, uh, Andy, is, um, by the way, never let your teammate down on the, on the court. So if your guy has a tough assignment, so for example, and say Jess Bessel tomorrow night, just say that Alec Burks has a tough assignment guarding Dwayne Wade, which could happen because Dwayne Wade's a good player. And so, which means that now, now your big guys have to know that and that they're going to be so alert of trying to give organized help and then play themselves back in the play instead of everyone playing individually, leave the one guy that's guarding an elite player out on an island and say, that's not my man. When, when someone scores against our team, everyone should take it personal. That defense, when it's all said and done, is a personal thing. Absolutely. I totally agree. And teams need to have, we talk all the time on this show and in in our writing about teams having the sort of cohesiveness defensively. It's not individual players. It is a five-man unit. If somebody else gets scored on, that wasn't their man that scored on them. It was everybody's man. It was the opponent, essentially, that scored. I totally agree there, Coach. Now, let's take it a little bit more general. We've talked a lot of jazz so far. You watch everything in the NBA. You don't definitely just watch the Jazz, and of course you don't only watch Orlando, whom you currently work for as well. Going around the league a little bit, who have been some of your favorite surprises go so far, whether it's players, teams, whatever? Oh, there's so many surprises. and it's, The NBA, there's nothing like it. It's, it's the most amazing thing where you think you know, but you find out you hardly know anything. So, for example, I'm surprised in the East about the Atlanta Hawks. Those guys have won eight straight in a row. Their record is 15-6, and six, and no one ever talks about them. And from a Jazz standpoint, meaning formerly, they have three guys that every Jazz fan loved. They are Paul Millsap, Damari Carroll, and Kyle Korver. And those three guys have some good moments. And let's fast forward it now in Atlanta, meaning in the Deep South, and those guys have really been a major, con- a major con- contributors to the Atlanta Hawks being very well. They had, let's add also right now, Jeff Teague is really a solid point guard, and Al Horford off injury last year, they've gotten dramatically better. That's been a surprise. Now, negative, uh, alarming situation has been these four teams, the Nets, the Pacers, the Knicks, and the Pistons. The, I would agree. The Knicks are 4-20. and 20. Yikes. It's almost impossible to do. And we know, let's state the obvious here, just for one uh, one discussion point that the West is more dominant than the East. So if you're four and twenty playing uh, in Eastern Conference, you're, that's really troubling. Detroit Pistons—they've lost thirteen straight games in a row. It's hard to do in the NBA losing that many. The head coach is also the boss, Stan Van Gundy. So those guys are, d- are doing a, b- a poor job. The players interviewing for a future employment if you get my drift on that team. <laughs> Absolutely. Add to that, the paces. Even though Paul George is, is a really a great two-way player and his coming out party was uh, last year in the playoffs, 
I never thought they would drop that dramatically, which shows you the power of not, not him being there. They moved on Lance Stevenson, only they know why, as far as it wasn't working out both on the court, off the court, and they have not replaced him so far, and they only have right now uh, seven wins. The last one in the East is, is the uh, Nets. Darren Williams, that crew, Joe Johnson, Lopez. I know Lopez isn't hurt recently, with a, a recently right now, but before that he wasn't hurt. Their record, their record is 8-12, uh, and 12. so they might have a fire sale there. Every year before the trading deadline, generally speaking, there's one to three teams that thought they're going to really be competitive, and they're not, and they're overpaying on these guys dramatically, and they have a fire sale. So the fire sale could be this year, possibly, the Nets, the Pistons, and perhaps the, the Timberwolves. So those three teams. Out in the West, just quickly, I know, I know you guys are up for the break right now, is that the Warriors have been absolutely great. Are you kidding me? Won 14 games in a row. They, what they've done, uh, unlike previous years, their offense was always wonderful, but now they're, they lead the NBA in defense. So those guys are bought in. They have a sensational two-way player, and Clay Thompson, Andrew Bogut, the former Utes, has played great as far as passing the ball, rebounding, shot blocking, and Stephen Curry's on a different planet. If I was voting for the MVP right now at the uh, one-quarter mark of the NBA, my first guy would be Stephen Curry, and number two would be Anthony Davis. I don't so, think you're alone there, Gordy. Yeah, no. So, I mean, he's right there. And so getting back to this, uh, Andy and Ben, remember every time during the, in, in those dog days of June when we always talk, always talk about the draft, and these experts always say on the air, whether it's national radio or national television, that, oh, after the first three players, the draft is really, really not that strong. That is the most uh, weirdest thing a person could say. Uh, let's describe right now Stephen Curry. Number seven in the draft, he's a once-in-a-lifetime shooter, and he's a resident good guy. So there's good players all over in the draft, or guys not even drafted, and good coaching and smart playing is to dig them out. The last one I'm really impressed by are the Clippers. They're making a transformation with Doc Rivers of being an elite athletically into being an elite team. They've won now nine games in a row. And Blake Griffin is making a transformation. And they've got some good play out of DeAndre Jordan, J.J. Redick, Chris Paul is a once-in-a-lifetime player, and Matt, Matt Barnes. Now, the concern right now with the Clippers is they might not be that deep. So if I'm the Clippers, I'm trying to get Andre Karolinko to get on, on their team to add another defensive player off the bench so in a playoff-type game, he can slow down, for example, for a discussion point. Maybe he slows down for 16 minutes in a playoff game. He slows down uh, Kevin Durant in a game like that. Or he, sl- he, s- he slows down Kawhi Leonard when they play the, uh, they play the Spurs. So Karolinko's out there right now. I know he, I know the, um, he got traded today to the uh, 76ers, but they're going to waive him. And he'll be out there starting probably this weekend. And don't be surprised, a good a good playoff team will add one more player to try to get them over the hurdle. No, you're right, and I think Kurlenko is a good fit for that. He, he's shown an ability to guard, especially Kevin Durant in the past. Well, Gordy, thank you so much for, for joining us today on the show. Your insight, as always, is incredibly appreciated. Thanks, guys, and uh, do well, too. Thank you. 
Thanks, Cordy. Thanks a lot, Coach. We really appreciate it. I, I think he nailed it with that with that around the NBA segment. That I mean, was, we're going to do it really on the good. other side of the break, but that kind of just did it for us. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. The good news is we do have more stuff to talk about. And one team he didn't mention, I want to get into right now, the Los Angeles Lakers. This is your LOL Lakers segment. Yay. I, I'm so excited for this just because of how bad the Lakers have been and, and what has happened with the Lakers today. And yeah, I was going to say we had some new stuff today that's going to make this a really fun segment. Yeah, so th- this week in Lakers, I mean, so right now the Lakers are 6-16, six and 16, tied with the Jazz um, uh, at the bottom of the Western Conference. Uh, but a bunch of fun things happened. First of all, they did make the change in the starting lineup that we talked about last week. Ronnie Price is now starting in, in Lakerland over Jeremy Lin. Uh, and then Carlos Boozer got benched, which, which he was not at all happy about. Bit, that kind of sucks. Yeah, he was a little – that wasn't him specifically, but he said something like that, I think. That was Gordon, right? Yeah. Gordon Hayward? Yes. So, But, yes, it does kind of suck. He, he was – pretty salty about the situation and it's clear that he's he's not happy with uh coach byron scott about that move and then next day magic johnson was quoted as saying quote unquote i hope the lakers lose every game which is you know it's more a nod to the draft pick than oh sure i mean but that he wants the lakers to tank is is an idea of uh, let's go out and make him quit (laughs) how far the lakers have fallen yeah uh kobe and rajon rondo had a breakfast a a meeting of um Nice people. Extraordinary a, gentlemen. A very nice people. Yeah. Um, which they I think is... know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought that was funny. And, and then the piece de resistance tonight, or today, Ooh, was well uh, the, the practice quotes. Um, the Lakers, to their immense credit, let reporters into the last 15 minutes of practice today. And usually, you know, when that happens in Jazzland, we get to watch free throws. It, it's a really exciting time. Uh, but today in practice, it was a scrimmage, uh, and it was clear that people involved weren't happy. Uh, Nick Young was trash-talking Kobe. and No they... one in the world can guard me. No one. Yes. Unleash the fury! <laughs> but Kobe is not of this world, quote-unquote. That was, that was his response to Nick Young's trash-talking, which I thought was fantastic. Wow. Like, that's the only thing you can say. Kobe is quick on his feet. Um, and, and then as he walked off the floor... Uh, I don't know if we can quote this on the air, per se. An expletive-laden tirade, if you will. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, it's it's ugly. I, I'm, I am uncomfortable saying it on the radio, just because Kobe was at his expletive-laden best. Let's put it that oh, way. Absolutely. And, and now... The and one that, attacking his teammates, too. That's the uh, That was the more major part of it. Now, the, the thing is, though, and this has been the general reaction among a lot of folks, is that uh, because we don't see these types of things very often, because media typically is not allowed into practices during scrimmages, I think this does happen more frequently than people talk about. There's a lot of trash talking that goes on, even within a practice. There's, these are these are guys that have a lot of pride. They're, they're used to... They've spent their whole lives being the best at what they're doing, you know? It's not easy to go out to, you know, spend 15 years being the best at, at basketball and then you get into the NBA as a late pick or something like that and you're getting dominated in practice by your teammates. That can't be simple. I mean, Michael Jordan used to do that. that used to, this used to be an everyday occurrence for Michael Jordan in his practice. Kobe says, quote unquote, back in my younger days, I used to practice like that every day. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, this is a thing that uh, the quote-unquote great players have done before. I honestly think it's part of the, the Kobe acting as MJ mm-hmm. thing that really he has done kind his of— His whole career. His, yeah, his, his whole career. There's no doubt. Um, some, a quote that I can use, quote-unquote, we're soft like Charmin. 
Charmin Ultrasoft, it is really soft. He's right there. I mean, Charmin is great <laughs> stuff. No, they're – I don't I don't make as much you know and of course you, you want to make it a big thing. Everything that Kobe does these days is kind of news and especially if it in any way. Well, he's attacking his teammate. If no. any player in the league does what he did tonight, it, it would absolutely be a story. I, I agree that it would be, but I think that the eventual backlash reaction would be the same as it has been now. It would be more of a guys this happens more frequently than we might be. Sure, aware. but uh, again, for you to do it and you know the reporters are there. So That's he, yeah, that is one thing that I wanted to talk is you know he knows they're there. Right. And that's to me. In fact, that's probably the biggest part. I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's the the difference between it happening all the time and it actually happening when people are going to. And he knows people are going to talk about it. He know he knows it's going to be the front page stuff in L.A. newspapers tomorrow, so on and so forth. But look, I guarantee that there's no one on the Jazz talking like this during practice with or without reporters being there you know yeah. honestly they're just more respectful and, and more uh, team oriented than that you know like gordon hayward legitimately wants his his teammates to succeed he wants he you know he's not dropping mf bombs and whatever else on them because he legitimately sees them as co-workers that they can grow together with kobe doesn't see his current teammates as that he sees them as, as like lesser beings yeah. i hate him i hate, I hate him I hate, I hate everything and that's that's not okay i i just think that that's that's cancerous for a team concept, for a team that's trying to work together to win basketball games. I'm surrounded by idiots. <laughs> Andy, you have, you have somewhat convinced me, actually, because it's – and the main, the main part being, you know, it, it, there are a lot of places where you're not going to see that sort of thing. And I think – like, do you think that that happens in Spurs practices? No. Yeah, probably not. Right? Tim Duncan's not going out there dropping whatever's on who on like Tony, Tony Parker, Parker and yeah. – or, you know, even like Boris Diaw. Everyone likes to joke about Boris Diaw, but, you know, the, it's joking. It, the, Kobe was dead serious about how much he hates his teammates – Two report while reporters were there yelling at Mitch Kupchak. Like I, those are just things that I, I don't think can be part of a quality team uh, group. Yeah. I, I I just don't see that that they can win games consistently like that. I I, I think he's honestly self destructing that Lakers organization. He has been extremely selfish. I did send a tweet today that I, th- I think that the the one record that Kobe is finally approaching of Wilt Chamberlain's that he may not have ever wanted to get to is the the title of most amazingly selfish superstar <laughs> because that's the that's sort of the way in a lot of ways Wilt is remembered is that yeah. he was he cared more about his own stats than about the team's final result cared more about bragging about the number of women he'd betted and things like that than about coming to practice early and do, you know doing right. important stuff he thought he was above everybody because in a lot of ways he was he was the greatest player the game had ever seen at that point and I really think Kobe, in a lot of ways, this season, you know, there was that Henry Abbott piece that came out on ESPN detailing the incredibly rude ways he approached Dwight Howard and Steve Nash when the Lakers were pitching those guys on free agency, things like yeah. that. You know, it comes across really, really selfish. And as a guy who wants to be remembered for his legacy, some of it you don't get because legacy isn't an individual thing. We wouldn't remember Michael Jordan the same way if he'd only won one title and still won like eight scoring championships or whatever. Right. We wouldn't remember him as the greatest player of all time, no question. No, that's absolutely the case, and I think that's that's Kobe's predicament right here. I do think Kobe Bryant does work harder than Wilt did. He's one of the—I think he may be the hardest-working guy out there, you know, in terms of just not sleeping, watching film. He's, he's all-encompassed with this process, but it's turning negative about him. And, of course, the Lakers still have two more years, $24 million per year left on that contract. Mm. And the best part, of course, if 
that right now they would have a coin flip with the Jazz to see whether or not they would keep their pick or trade oh it to God. the Suns. So. Please, Jazz, finish with the exact same record <laughs> as the Lakers so that we can win a coin flip against the Lakers. That and would have be hilarious. Oh, that'd be so cool. Well, we'll continue going around the NBA. There are some good stories around the league. We'll keep talking about them on the other side of this break. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the show. You're listening to Salt City Hoops. My name is Andy Larson, Ben Dowsett on the other side of the table. We're going around the NBA with the assist from Gordy Chiesa last segment. But first of all, we've got some kind of bigger general NBA news that the NBA is talking to teams about restructuring how they do the season. So still 82 games like you've been used to all these years. But now basically they cut off half of the preseason, go from about eight games to about four games uh, and then start the season two weeks earlier, that would give about uh, 10 extra days off or so in between, just so there would be fewer back-to-backs. There would be fewer of these three games and four night situations. Ben, do you like it? I do. And, you know, uh, our friend Zach Lowe at Grantland wrote a piece about it today, pretty much detailing everything. If you want all the details, check that out. And his point was that a larger issue looms, which is that it, in an ideal world, you would like to reduce the number of games that are being played in the regular season because not only is the timetable a little bit too crunched, but 82 is likely a bit too much for players' legs and things like that in terms of longevity. But knowing that that's not a realistic solution because of dollars, I think this is one of the the few steps that you can take that's really going to help something like that without reducing the number of games whatsoever. It's going to help a little bit of the imbalance in terms of scheduling. Like, you know, the other night when the Jazz were playing on the second night of a back-to-back and San Antonio had been in Salt Lake City longer than they had, you right. know, because they the San Antonio was hanging out for the previous two days type of thing. You'd see a lot less of that, a lot less of that sort of imbalance. And so I'm, I would be completely for it as a stopgap, if you will. I, I think it's something – I don't want to see the NBA move away from 82 games. I actually like that amount, and I like mm-hmm. the history behind 82 games. That's a that's a consideration, too. All sorts of records and whatnot are very different. Right. And, and so, I, I, you know, if you know the new Kevin Durant comes up and has to play half of his career in a league with only 60 games, let's say, he's never going to break the MJ, Kobe Bryant, Carmelone, Kareem – Scoring record, right? It's just never going to happen with yeah. with twenty percent fewer games. That sort of thing. I like to s- compare the current players to the the greats of the NBA, and I think that would get in the way. I like eighty two games. I wish it would spread out more. I think this is exactly the right way to do it. Yeah, I think it's going to be a. It'll be good to see if it. And now, of course, nothing is official. This is still as Zach reported. This is kind of just being floated informally to some of the higher ups, right. and Teams around the league, but I think it's the kind of thing that there's not a whole lot of downside to this. There's the, he mentioned how the, it's not actually the NBA that makes the preseason schedule. It's individual teams themselves. So you'd eliminate kind of some of the haggling between team GMs and things like that for, you know, when's the game going to be, where's the game going to be, so on and so yeah. forth. And, and, and I don't think any owner or whoever is going to really be mourning the loss of four preseason games to their revenue. Right. I mean, to be fair, the, the Jazz are able to sell one more season ticket to all of their season ticket holders. True. So, you know, they do make actually a substantial amount off that game. Uh, that being said, I think it's something they could last. Maybe the Jazz have to change their motto from 44 United to 42 or 43 United. We'll see. Yeah. Um, l- let's narrow it down to the Western Conference uh, where the, the 
it's straight up ridiculous with how good the top seven in the Western Conference is. All seven, uh, all of the top seven teams are on pace to win more than fifty-eight games. That's obviously never happened before, and, and would be incredible. May also be impossible just I was with how say, the math adds yeah. up. Um, but at the top of that are the Golden State Warriors. They're on pace for seventy-four wins. That would obviously be an NBA record. Uh, I didn't think they could be this good. Is it Steve Kerr compared to Mark Jackson? Is it is it just all him? Is uh, I mean, is Steph Curry? Uh, he's obviously quite good, but I, I'm just kind of mind blown at how a team can start 19 and two. Here's here's my metaphor for this one. You know when you have one of those little locks that you have for a, like a gym locker or whatever, mm-hmm. and you get it to like like a half number off from where it's supposed to be and you can feel it it wants to pull like you can feel it it's coming halfway but it's not getting the full way there and then you you put it right to the end of the number and all of a sudden it clicks i feel like that's what steve kerr did steve kerr is half, for a, the, locker. half a locker number click okay <laughs> I, I, I feel like that's metaphorically speaking what steve kerr did this year compared to mark jackson everything was in place the combination had been put in correctly that you know they were ready to pull the lock open everything's there i feel like kerr has come in and just subtly adjusted a few little things we oh, i think we've talked about the, the, the warriors before and we mentioned that they that he didn't he hasn't basically changed anything defensively except for some some lineup rotations right. But, you know, a few things offensively, they're passing the ball a little bit more, more meaningful passes, which is something the Jazz could use to watch every now and then. And I think that it's it's just clicked. Everything has been perfect. We know they have the talent. We've known they have. I think a hindrance going forward, I actually don't know the answer to this. How bad is that Bogut injury that he's just, or is he is he back good? I, I it's I my understanding it's a day to day thing. Okay, so he's if he's not going to miss serious time, and if as long as this doesn't become another one of those years where this is kind of a thing for Bogut, where he's in and out of the lineup all the time, I think there's they have to be the prohibitive favorites at this point to win the Western Conference because you just you can't match up with them. They're put. We, I, t- I mentioned Harrison Barnes earlier on the show, and they've also got Draymond Green. They're like. You you can't guard these guys when they're putting these guys and, and when they're putting them in at the four spot and they know that especially coming off the bench or a guy like Iguodala when you've got bench guys playing against one of those small fours you don't have really strong post presences in uh, at backup four in the right. NBA you you don't have guys that are going to be able to kill those guys in the post but on the other end your general backup four is not going to be able to stop them from raining threes all over your face. And they, they've, <laughs> they've been incredible at it. I think they're top, aren't they top five in so both graphic. Off- I know. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, aren't they, aren't they top five in both offense and defense yes. now? Yeah. Which is, I mean, that means you're a title contender to give you an idea. They are winning games by an average of 11.2 points per game. That's basically as bad as the Philadelphia. That's as good as the Philadelphia 76ers are bad. And as we know, they are actively trying to lose games. So like that they're as good at winning as the Sixers are at losing is, is a pretty impressive feat. Yeah. It's really, really amazing. Um, uh, Clint Peterson actually just tweeted to, to you his most, Kerr's most key adjustment, not blowing up his own locker room. And you know what? That's an astute observation because frankly, that was, something that was a, a potential issue with with Mark Jackson there were people wondering are thing and he goes back to his jazz history and things like that but are there issues with Mark Jackson in the front office are there issues with Mark Jackson and his pride in the locker room and things like that I don't think there's any bit of that with a guy a gregarious person like Steve Kerr right yeah Mark Jackson is, is a known locker room problem 
And, um, yeah, you're right. You don't have to worry about that with Steve Kerr. Let's move on to the Eastern Conference, where I think some interesting things are happening, some unexpected things. Uh, Gordy Chazer referenced it with the Atlanta Hawks, but they are now second in the East, and and they're third in defensive rating over the last three weeks. And and to me, that's really promising because they do look so much like the Utah Jazz. I mean, besides literally having three former Jazz men in their roster, I I, I think Al Horford and Derek Favors are kind of similar players in that they're, they're playing the center position, they have similar size. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Paul Millsap. You've got an awesome point guard, Jeff Teague, who you wrote about earlier in the week. What, what's going on in Atlanta? You know, I think a huge amount of credit. And I'm going to kill two birds with one stone with my answer here because our big fan, Angie, also just asked again, does anyone think Kerr isn't a lock for coach of the year? I do not think he is a lock because I think that a potential competition for him there is Atlanta coach Mike Budenholzer. I think he has done an absolutely incredible job with this team. I actually have another Atlanta Hawks piece coming soon. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or earlier next week on the overall Hawks and the way they're – it's not on the defense, actually, which is remarkable enough by itself. As you say, they've been the third-best defense over the last couple of weeks. Mine is actually about the amazing, amazing counters that this team has built into their offense. I don't think there's a team in the league, including the Spurs, that has more – they run a simple set – But then they show you the same set with three or four different little tweaks, different variations, things that just throw the defense for an absolute loop. They'll have Kyle Korver run over and set an extra pick on a pick and roll. Defenses have absolutely no clue how to handle that stuff, especially with a guy like Korver who has so much gravity attached to him. I think a big part of it, honestly, is on Budenholzer. I think he's brought in an excellent system there on both ends of the court. He understands his personnel. You know, when he first came in at the beginning of last season, everybody was talking about this team as a group that had a lot of trade possibilities. That they had a ton of tradable pieces, maybe some pieces that didn't fit an eclectic group, if you will. He's taken that group, he's utilized their strengths, and he's empowered them to to really be excellent. They could have two all-stars this year in both Teague and Millsap. Wow. Yeah, I I think that's really impressive. So let me ask you, if if, to put you on the spot, if you had to predict the Eastern Conference Finals and the Western Conference Finals today... Let's start with the West. Oh, man, you're really putting me on the spot. What are the two teams you think... Well, I am going to put Golden State there. I think that they're, and especially the fact that they've, they're not just an upstart. They have made the playoffs the last couple of seasons and had a couple of disappointments and have learned some things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put them there. <sighs> wow. I really don't know who my second team is. I'm going to say the Oklahoma City Thunder. Wow. And that's because. But right now, those teams would play in the first round. Right now, they would, which so that wouldn't work. Well, but I I'm guess a, the. The Thunder still have to move up. But really, I think, honestly, their best-case scenario is the eighth spot. Yeah, uh, it might. They might be able to get high now. If that, and if the you, you might be right, and if that's the case, then I'm gonna kind of hedge my answer here. <laughs> okay. Any team of Dallas, uh, Portland, Houston, San Antonio, even the Clippers, they, I, it would not shock me the least bit. If any but of you these think teams Golden State's it. a favorite to be in that game, and then also to get out of that and be in the NBA Finals? A favorite over the field? No, no. but just but if uh, the largest percentage chance, I would okay. say yes, because I think on both ends of the court, they have the, as long as they stay healthy, they have the toughest matchups for opposing teams on both sides of the ball. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. Um, I, I'd go with East? Golden State. Uh, oh, sorry. No, you go for Yeah, sorry. I, I'd go with Golden State, too, because I, I do think they've taken that leap. I, I then think maybe the Houston Rockets are your other team on the other side. I mean, I uh, both... Harden and Howard have taken leaps over where they were in last season. Well, and, and then, Howard's been hurt half the season, and they're still killing everyone. Right, and, and so that they're able to do that and and still be as good as they've been, I, I think they're a real contender in terms of making it to that Western Conference Finals. 
that would be a really interesting series. I, I don't know how much I believe in Memphis just because I've seen how the Memphis San Antonio thing works out. Mm-hmm. Um, ditto with Portland Clippers. You know, I, I shouldn't have included real... Portland. I don't. I don't actually think Portland can make the Western Finals. I shouldn't have included okay. them. No, that's fair. Let, let's go to the East really quick, though. Um, your pick for the Eastern Conference Finals. Amazingly, that's like almost as hard at this really? point, right? Well, I mean, because am I comfortable putting the Cavaliers in there yet? I'm not sure. That said, I am putting them in there because <laughs> they still have LeBron, and he's the kind of the only guy out there that's really done this before, like consistently. Um, I'm going to put him there, and I'm going to put. I'm going to. I'm going to say Toronto. That's I, fair. I, I mean, I, those are the two teams that have the best differential. Um, so you know, you're taking the statistical favorite, if you will. Yeah, and I I I love Kyle Lowry to an, a huge extent. They've faltered a little bit with DeRozan being out, but he'll be back well in time uh, for the for the playoffs. I'm not mistaken on that, am I? He'll be DeRozan will be back, right? Yeah, yeah. So De, they'll have DeRozan back, and he was their best player last year. I think Valanciunas has made a, a really big improvement this year. I think their bench is just way way better than they were last year. Patrick Patterson is super underrated. I really like him. Um, yeah, and I think they'll they would prevent, present a really interesting series for the Cavaliers in a potential Eastern Conference Finals like that. What do you think? Yeah, no, I I agree that the Cavaliers are still. You have to say that they're their favorites. You know, even though they are two games back of the league, that's only two games back. I think that's something that they can make over the course of the three quarters of the season. Mm-hmm. And you're right that they have the the best talent of the field. Um, beyond that, I think I'm going with Chicago. I yeah. I you know. Again, this is not this is kind of the obvious pick, but just because of the talent they have with Derrick Rose and Pau Gasol and Joakim Noah, I mean, they they have that sort of defensive focus that I don't know that Washington and Atlanta have yet. I mean, sure, we we talked about how those teams are doing really well recently defensively, but I'm not sure how they do when it comes to playing the best teams in the league in a seven game series. Yeah, especially a team that you know once they scout you and they and you're only focusing on one opponent in the playoffs, things change from the regular season. I would agree with that. And yeah. the reason I left left Chicago out of mine is I'm just I'm not convinced at this point that Derrick Rose can play a full playoffs. That's a healthy. Fair, that's a fair point. Um, all right, well let's go to we got to take a break, but um, on the other side we're going to be talking about some the. Jazz theme song of yesteryear, Yay. plus looking forward to the next week as the Jazz hit the road. Uh, you're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. I just love this song unconditionally. I, <laughs> this is... In case you haven't heard it, this is the famous 2008-09 Utah Jazz theme song by infinite, infamous rap artist D-Biz Ono. Have you heard of D-Biz Ono before? No, I that's because that is. this is his only song. I have no idea who he is. <laughs> this is his stage name. So the Jazz held a contest five years ago trying to come up with this Utah Jazz theme song, and D-Biz Ono submitted this. This is what won? This is what I mean. No offense or anything. This is super. <laughs> ca- this is super catchy and all. I actually really? don't mind the beat that much. No, it's a good beat, but it's like I don't know. It's, the rapping is terrible. Yeah, you gotta turn up your bass to enjoy this one. Okay, I'm just gonna imagine. It's also the jazz. <laughs> How many rap songs can he come up with exactly. about the jazz? Yeah. Let's consider the demographic a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think it's decently well done and makes me just giggle every time. If if you want, the entire song is on my Twitter feed, so you can listen to the the amazing lyrics thereof. At Andy, some, at Andy Blarson. Yes, at Andy B. Larson. Um, please do because some of the lyrics, looking back five years later, 
about Darren and Boozer and Memo are, are I do. I am definitely going to look up the lyrics Good. after this, yeah. All right, well, the Jazz are going on the road next week, and, and we just kind of want to look forward to that. They've got four games before we're back on the air. As always, Thursday, 7 to 9 p.m. right here on ESPN 700. Want to just kind of break down the schedule, give our prediction for how the Jazz are going to do. Um, this week, they were one of three, which I think is what we predicted last Last I believe Thursday. They so, didn't beat the team we thought they were going to no, beat. No, they, they failed against the Magic and beat the Spurs because, you know, that's NBA basketball for you. But regardless, first game is tomorrow against Miami here in Energy Solutions before going on the road. Uh, you know, I think, honestly, this is one of their first big opportunities for a win um, out of this next week's schedule just because they do have that home court advantage and Miami hasn't looked great recently no they've been having some of the same issues the Jazz were having their defense has been really struggling they've had a lot of issues with they're one of those teams that plays a high hedge off the pick and roll which is for those who don't know that's when you have the the big man who's guarding the guy setting the pick you have him jump out on the other side of the pick to stop the ball handler from kind of rounding the corner if you will and getting into the middle of the floor that can leave you open and vulnerable occasionally to the roll man then rolling and it kind of leaves a, a four on three situation if they're right. able to get the ball to the roll man they run that strategy and they also ran it when they had LeBron in previous years when that strategy breaks down it breaks down really badly yeah and it works really well when you have the length and athleticism of Le- LeBron James there to pick off passes etc I don't think it works as well when you know you've got Norris Cole etc as their starting point guard yeah absolutely and they've and well actually Cole's pretty good at defense but the I the, the issue has been when you let that four on three happen which sometimes is going to be unavoidable you have to be long and really fast and athletic to cover the miss the the four on three situation that you're going to be facing and that Miami is just not young or fast anymore right I'm, I'm curious what you think about Luol Deng um, because he was so good with Chicago and then since leaving them has been ruined I almost wonder if like Thibodeau permanently broke Luol Deng somebody made the it was on might have been on the low podcast or something like that somebody made the reference of him essentially being that yeah you know what it was it was Simmons specifically made the reference of him being that car that's got in reality, has 140,000 miles on it, but somebody rolled back the odometer, so it says 40,000. <laughs> that's Luol Deng, and that's a spot-on comparison by Mr. Simmons. There, that's he. You know, he's. I think he's only like 28 or 29 or something, maybe 30, something like that. Yeah, he's not young. not ancient by NBA standards. Not young, but not ancient either. But the guy has got so much mileage on his body that at a certain point, it's just like there's not as much you can your joints and your muscles are just worn down from the amount of stuff that you've done the amount of of stress that you've put on them i think he he gives his all and he's a player who i'd love to have who i always would have loved to have on one of my teams because things like hustle and determination are never a problem with guys like that but i just don't know how much physically he has left in the tank vegas by the way has a jazz winning that game by one point is is they're currently the favorites so what do you think Jazz win or Jazz lost. I would tomorrow. like to see the Jazz win that game. I think, and I think they will. I think they're going to win the game. Two wins in a row. Look I know, at, right? Look at the Jazz. All right, uh, and then Sunday they take on the Washington Wizards in Washington as part of the the, the first game in the six game road trip. I think that's a loss. I mean, John Wall, et cetera, have been playing really well this season. Yeah, and with the Jazz's issues that they've had with guard defense, both John Wall and Bradley Beal are going to be coming at them. That's a good point. They're just so much faster than the Jazz's guards. Yeah, the Jazz are going to have a lot of problems there. I think their best case is going to be to try and hope that they can convince Wall to pull up for a bunch of those jumpers, maybe show him bodies coming around the corners on those pick and rolls and hope that he flails away from Mm mid-range and misses more than he makes. I think that's your your best chance. Then they fly to New Orleans for Tuesday night to take on the New Orleans Pelicans and best PR of all time, Anthony Davis. 
going to be a tough one, and I think it might look a lot like when New Orleans came here and played <laughs> a few weeks back, which I was at, and it was uh, it was a bit of an ugly affair. The Jazz don't have anybody who can even think about guarding Anthony Davis, so yeah. neither does anybody. That's not a diss on the Jazz, right? Neither nobody does because he's insane. Yeah, I I again agree. I think it's kind of a similar script, and then uh, then they play the Heat again Wednesday, December seventeenth, on a back to back again because of the back to back, because of the travel, because it's game four and a six game losing trip. I I I think they. They lose. Is Miami on a back-to-back as well? I'm trying to check that. I right don't now. know. Because if it is, you might see somebody like Wade sit. And if they do, then it could be a, a game the Jazz have the chance to win. I'm just checking real quick. If it is, it is. They do play the night before on the road, actually. So maybe. So it could be. It'll be. Both teams have that situation, and Miami's not young, so we'll see. But pick a record for the those four games this week. I'm going one and three. I'm going one and three as well. I think they win tomorrow and then lose the next three. Jazz fans, don't be discouraged. There's still a lot of process and growth and, and excitement to happen with this team. Process. They, yes. <laughs> they won last night or a Tuesday night against the Spurs. And, and again, it was the confidence building moment like uh, Greg Popovich talked about. Anyway, you can find us on SaltCityHoops.com. We are the ESPN Troop affiliate of the Utah Jazz. You've been listening to Salt City Hoops Radio on ESPN 700.